Hello, racists, sexists, homophobes, and other assorted people of the internet. Yes, I'm talking to all of you because that's what you are. This is Dave Rubin. This is the Rubin Report Direct Message for September 10th, 2020. And uh, I'm only doing two stories today, actually. I've told you a couple times. I'm going to try to keep it to two or three, four sometimes. Today I'm going to do two stories. And then, of course, tomorrow is the 19th anniversary of 9-11. And uh, I come from New York. I was born in New York. I was a New Yorker most of my life. I've had tons of family living in New York City. I lived in New York City during 9-11. I want to tell you a little bit about that. You know, I realized yesterday as we were coming up with the stories for today and last night that um, I don't know that I've ever really talked about my experience in 9-11 uh, in New York City during 9-11 and for the weeks and months and actually for the years after that. Um, I've Usually on 9-11 I do a little Twitter thread with some thoughts about what it was like to be there then, um, but I don't think I've ever done anything on camera, talked directly to you guys about it. So I thought I'd share a little bit about that. I wrote about it a little bit in Don't Burn This Book, but I wanted to expand on it a little bit more. So we're just going to do two stories of the day, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about 9-11 because we're not doing a show tomorrow, Friday. So uh, the two big stories that came across my desk, I have a desk and things just come across the desk, uh, were first off this uh, University of Michigan at Dearborn story. And this is sort of the perfect idiotic storm of a story that I think everyone kind of needs to know about. Now, and then the other story is that Trump put out a list of potential Supreme Court nominees and he's asking Biden to do the same thing. So those are the two stories that we're going to cover today and then we'll get to uh, some of the September 11th stuff in, in just a couple minutes. Uh, the University of Dearborn, Michigan at Dearborn story is, is completely bananas, completely idiotic, and really sums up almost everything that we're all dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis right now. So the University of Michigan at Dearborn, they decided to host virtual cafes for students of color. Now, we can have a debate whether those types of things are, are sort of silly unto themselves, sort of creating these safe spaces for students of color or whatever they consider to be marginalized groups or all of those things. By the way, I'm not inherently against any group coming together uh, to talk about issues that matter to them, right? That seems to be fine. But the funny thing here is that in this case at University of Michigan, they sort of took it to the end conclusion. Most of the things that we do and when we talk about why social justice is so screwy and why wokeness destroys everything, it never really gets to its end conclusion. But in this case, they actually took it to its end conclusion because they decided to have a uh, virtual cafe for the you know students of color and indigenous students and things like that. And I'm, we're going to pull up the image and I'm going to read it exactly to you. But then what would be the natural end of all of that? Well, now you've got a whole bunch of people that are excluded. So they decided to actually <clears throat> have a virtual cafe for the non students of color and the non-indigenous students, in effect, for the white students. And I thought that was the thing that we were supposed to be against. Remember that Martin Luther King guy? Old school, I know his ideas are old and archaic, and you know he wanted his children to be 
uh, judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I know it's just old nonsense that we're really not supposed to care about anymore. You should only care about people's color and their sexuality and their gender and things like that because that defines everything about them. If you see a black lesbian with a limp, you know everything about her just by that. Doesn't matter what she thinks. Um, it's all so stupid. But the reason that this story is so perfect is because we only think about it one way, but they actually took it the other way and said, okay, no, we're gonna have a virtual cafe for you, in effect, bad white people. Well, that didn't go over too well. So let's, let's pull up the first image. Uh, the BIPOC, this is what they call it, the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Cafe is a space for students from marginalized racial, ethnic, cultural communities to gather and to relate to one another and to discuss their experience as students on campus as, and as people of color in the world. It's hosted by the Center for Social Justice and Inclusion. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, all of the words become sort of Orwellian because you're saying it's about inclusion when you're excluding people based on their race and their cultural identity and their sexuality and the rest of it. And this is why, for those of you that are new to some of this game, when, when we talk about the oppression Olympics, right, and we talk about how this whole social justice movement, it really is just a house of cards because it all kind of sounds right, okay, we're gonna take this oppressed group, you know, this perceived oppressed group, and we're gonna take this oppressed group, and this one, and this one, and this one, and we're gonna combine them together as if together their, their power will be stronger, right? Their ability to change the world will be stronger. They will all help each other. Except the thing that they put primacy on, the most important thing to people who hold this worldview is their own oppression, right? So once you, as a member of one of those groups, have actually graduated out of the oppression, right? So if you're a black person who is successful, a gay person who is successful, a Hispanic person who is successful, they don't need you anymore. And in fact, you're then a traitor to the cause, right? This is why they absolutely, what do they hate most? Uh, well, I mean, it's Trump. Trump, Trump, of course it's Trump. But what do they really hate? It's, it's when a black person walks away from it. It's when a gay person walks away from it or a Latino walks away from it. You're an Uncle Tom, you're a sellout. You're a series of, of really what are the worst things that can be said. And then what's even more interesting is when a group as a, as a general idea, as a group becomes more successful, then they turn on that group, right? So Jews are a cultural minority, a pretty brutal history of a couple thousand years of a lot of pogroms and holocausts and things of that nature. But Jews through hard work and education have graduated out of the oppression, at least at the moment in 2020. I mean, the story usually doesn't go that well for that long. Uh, but so Jews are on the outs with these people. Asian people, Indian people who work really hard, care about education, care about family, they're really on the outs. The other one that's on the outs, gay white men, because now their whiteness is more important than their gayness. So now, you know, if, uh, if a guy like Peter Thiel, who's one of the great thinkers that we have in the world, uh, co-founder of, of PayPal, and he started Palantir and, and a whole bunch of other companies, he's, he's seeded a million different companies in Silicon Valley that are all on your phone right now. Um, you know, the advocate will say that he's not gay. Yes, he happens to be married to a man, but he's not gay because his politics don't line up with that. So they'll actually take your sexuality away. That's how insane 
this system of ideas is. That's why these people are all so angry at each other because it's a constant move of controlling people in a way that you would never want to be controlled, right? You, person watching this video right now, you would never want to be judged on, the, on your skin color, on your religion, on your sexuality, right? That's just a little piece of you for all of us. It's just a little piece, but they're focused on that. And it's really just a focus so that they can undermine everything else that's good in the West. In any event, they decided to have this virtual meeting and that, what I just read there, you may think it's silly. Obviously, I'm not on board with these ideas, but that's their right to do it. But then in essence, they did something amazing here because this is what no other school does. No other school says, okay, well, everyone else, you can have your meeting place too. So then, and we'll throw up the image, they had the non-POC cafe. This is the non-personal of color cafe. And in the non-POC cafe, the non-people of color cafe, it is a space for students that do not identify as persons of color to gather and discuss their experience as students on campus and as non-people of color in the world, hosted by the Center for Social Justice and Inclusion. So the Center for Social Justice and Inclusion is saying, black people, Latino people, gays, you go there, white people, you go there, inclusion, social justice. I mean, it's so profoundly idiotic that even, even I suspect some of the people that are in the first group must be going, uh, guys, uh, can I make a point here? I think we just created a whites only group. Didn't we not want that on the bus? We wanted everybody to be together. Rosa Parks could sit anywhere on the bus. That was a good thing. Remember that? Um, but this is just the endless stupidity that we are faced with in 2020. And something that I do think more and more and more of you guys are waking up to, and, and hopefully uh, what I've been doing for a couple of years now has a little something to do with it. Uh, they actually did issue an apology because then of course these pictures, of the two images that I just showed you, of course these went viral. I think they were originally from Instagram. Uh, they went viral on Twitter. And then what do we do? This is 2020, so we issue apologies and corrections. And uh, the statement said, we'll throw it up, UM Dearborn sincerely regrets the terms used to describe the cafe events held on September 8th. The terms used to describe these virtual events and the descriptions themselves were not clear and not reflective of the university's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, of course, the funny thing is that it actually was, right? Like they did exactly what all of these diversity, equity, and inclusion, or diversity offices, whatever they're calling them now, they did exactly what these offices have been calling for. And if you're going to create, if you're gonna say that identity, immutable identity is the most important thing that's out there, there is going to be a counter movement to it. Well then white people and straight people and whoever else is left out of the thing that you say is the most important thing, they're gonna create their own groups. Now in this case, you just did it for them. Um, but this is, do you see why this thing, guys, this thing is a cancer that is, that is reaching its tentacles and spreading throughout society. And we have a limited amount of time before it completely infects the host. In many regards, I think you could say that this election 
is basically that like that's almost what it comes down to more than anything else because this terrible set of ideas is just the the table setting for almost everything else we're we're fighting about right now because as bizarre as it sounds even though america in its 240 plus years has brought more economic success and more freedom to all of the groups that per, are perceived to be oppressed uh, it seems to be debatable well, that whether any of this was good or not. And that really, in many ways, I would say that and whether you want your cities to burn down or not are going to be the two issues that are sitting on the table more than anything else when it comes to the election in two months. Uh, because you, if you think about it this way, it's like, is foreign policy really going to be a big thing this year? Doesn't really seem like it, right? I mean, I talked about it yesterday. It seems like we're we're on the verge of some really big peace things in the Middle East. Doesn't seem like that's going to be something we're going to really vote about. Um, so some of the usual stuff that we're usually voting about, e even healthcare right now, doesn't seem like the thing that we're all really thinking about, right? We think there's a pandemic or whatever the hell's going on with coronavirus, and then there's cities burning down, and then just watching all of our institutions crumble. That is the thing. That is the thing that I think is going to be sitting in most people's mind when they go to the, the ballot box. So anyway, I thought this story was interesting because it's a perfect example of, you know, when I say that the road to hell leads to good intentions, do I think that all of the people who create these inclusion offices and diversity offices and virtual cafes, do I think that they're all evil? Of course I don't. I don't. Uh, I do think some of the leaders at the top and some of their political leaders are, are manipulating them and are, and are evil in that sense. But I think the students that come here, they've been indoctrinated with terrible ideas that have been taught to them now at public schools, which is a whole other issue uh, that we'll get into more over the next couple of weeks, because I think we're watching also the fruits of a, of a bad education system, a system that once was good, by the way. I, I'm a product of total public education from elementary school, middle school, high school, college. Um, there, there was good public education, but, but social justice as it infects everything destroys everything, uh, whether it's a public education system or whether it's a corporation or whether it's a religious institution, which we're seeing even religious institutions crumble under it right now. But this story was particularly interesting because they, they did it. They did it. Not only we're going to give you guys a special space, you want your safe space, but now whites and straights, you got one too. And, and let's fight it out. So it, it's just craziness and a perfect example of the, the stuff that is wrong in the world right now. Uh, let's move over to the, the second story, which is that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, some people say he's your president, right? They'll, well, he's your president. They go, well, thank you, live here too. Uh, he released a list of 20 potential Supreme Court nominees, and then he challenged Joe Biden to do the same. Now, uh, it looks like without question over the course of the four years of the next president, whether it's Trump or Biden or whoever they replace Biden with or whatever else, uh, that at least one Supreme Court nominee will be replaced. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, obviously her health is not great and she's 80 plus years old. Um, and they seem to be sort of, I think both sides are sort of seeding the ground for it. Now, I always find the debates about Supreme Court nominees to be a little disingenuous because, you know, the way the system is supposed to work, supposed to work, is we've got the three branches. I know you guys know about the three branches. What do we got? We got the legislative branch, they write the laws. We've got the executive branch, they sign the laws. 
And then we've got the judicial branch, and what do they do? The judicial branch actually makes sure that the laws are legal, okay? So those are the three branches that we've got. So each one of those branches does what they're supposed to do, or is supposed to do what they're supposed to do, and then that's how we have checks and balances, that's how we make sure that no part of the system of government gets too powerful or anything like that. Now, one of the problems that we have right now, and I think we've probably had for a couple decades at least, and this is just, I think, a condition of the human mind, is that we've put a tremendous amount of disproportionate attention, and in that regard, power, on the executive branch, in that, why did we leave England? Why did we leave England? We didn't want to be ruled by a king, right? They had a king, and we didn't like that. We wanted our own representation, right? No taxation without representation. Well, we've put so much emphasis on the president that we sort of look at the president like a king. So when people are like, you know, Biden's going to do this for me or Trump's going to do this for me. And it's like, actually, the president isn't supposed to do that much. Um, but one of the things that the president is supposed to do is nominate Supreme Court nominees. Then it goes to Congress and senators and the House of Representatives. They vote on the nominees. And it's not supposed to be done on a purely partisan basis. So while it's not supposed to be done on a purely partisan basis, as you guys know, we've devolved into where everything is. If you're Republican, you vote this way. You're Democrat, you vote this way. So I think Trump, in, in this regard, he's trying to get a little ahead of the game. And he's saying, look, if you vote for me, you know that I'm going to have to nominate somebody in these four years. Here's 20 people. And he's basically saying to the media, he's saying to anyone that votes for him, he's saying to all the political insiders, vet these guys accordingly. In a weird way, I guess this isn't even in a weird way, he's doing sort of a, a reality TV version of this, which I actually don't think is terrible because if, if it really is true that he would select someone out of these 20 people, well, now we have a ton of advanced time to look into all of them, right? And the funny thing is that Let's, let's say Trump wins re-election and he nominates one of these people. Now we know the media is gonna go crazy and they're gonna say he was, he was a rapist or a murderer or just all of the, the horrible things. I mean, just go back to the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and you know, it doesn't matter what you've done or what, you've, what the, your life's work has led to. Uh, if you're nominated, especially by a Republican, they're gonna say awful things with you, but you know, the reverse of that is true. If you're nominated by a Democrat, the Republicans are gonna say awful things. Okay, fine. Um, but I think he's doing a reality version here, which is, guys, you vet them, and he's letting sort of, he's letting sort of the, the whole world, in effect, he's letting the world go, okay, we kind of like this guy, we don't like this guy, you know, he's letting it sort of shake out. So you're, gonna, you're not going to know a lot of the names on the list. Um, really, I would say probably the, unless you're a real insider or a real like legal scholar type, um, but the two or three, let's say that you will know, for sure, Tom Cotton, uh, Ted Cruz, and there was one other, uh, Josh Howley. Now, these are, these are really interesting picks. Uh, those three, obviously, are Republicans. Um, look, I want to just talk about Ted Cruz for a second. So Ted Cruz, I've, I've had him on the show. You may have seen it. Uh, we did it probably in mid-July. Uh, I think Ted Cruz was the last interview that I did in the old studio, the last live interview that I did in the whole studio. And you may remember kind of funny insider thing that, uh, remember Ted Cruz got in trouble because someone on a plane took a picture of him drinking Starbucks and he didn't have his mask on. Now, he said later, well, I couldn't drink Starbucks with a mask on on the plane, so I did take the mask down to drink the Starbucks, but somebody found that moment and they sent out a picture and then I think it was United had to issue a statement and blah, blah, blah. 
Well, Ted Cruz brought that Starbucks cup into my house. And so now it was like the number one trending thing on Twitter. And we're like, well, we've got the very cup. Um, and I think we still have it actually. Um, in any event, Ted Cruz, I think is, well, first off, I think he's a good guy. All right. He's, he's a good guy. He's a real person. Um, you know, one of the things that is a, a privilege in the right sense of the word privilege for me is that I get to sit down with a lot of these people, usually just a couple feet away from them and really kind of figure out what they think. This is a guy who has thought seriously about these issues. You know, he went to Harvard law school. Uh, I think Alan Dershowitz, I'm going to roughly get this quote correct called him his, his smartest student that he had ever had, his best debater that he had ever had. Um, I asked Cruz this in our interview. I think he may have done things a little bit differently uh, in the 2016 run, which at the end it was really just him versus Trump, and he's become one of Trump's big supporters. I think Trump was probably willing to fight the media in a way that Cruz wasn't. That's just a little bit of the personality makeup. But I have no doubt that Ted Cruz is an absolutely excellent uh, scholar and has tremendous knowledge of the Constitution, and I think he would probably be a really great choice. I also think that you know, since he's gotten the beard, and it has something to do with the beard, I started the beard trend, right? Nobody had a beard before me, out on YouTube. Uh, that since he's got the beard, he's become a little more, a little more feisty. He he gets into it a little bit more. I think he's gotten a little more, a little more juice. Anyway, the purposes of this story really are not to make it about Ted Cruz or Josh Howley or anybody else, but I think it's interesting here that the executive, in this case the president, would say, here's potentially what I'm doing, guys. Here's potentially it, you vet him now, and then we'll see when we get there. That actually seems like a good level of transparency. Right now, I guess legally nothing's holding him to that. So the media could wreck all of these 20 people and then he could pick someone else. But I think the general idea here of these are, these are these are the people who think a certain way, who uh, use their judicial power in a certain way, or what will be their judicial power in a certain way. I know sort of how they think, and you vet them, and then ultimately will decide. I think that's a pretty good idea. I think it would be great if Biden actually did the same thing. And what I would hope more than anything else is that when we get to the nomination process, which probably happens, let's say, in the next year or two, um, that people could slightly get over the partisan politics part of it. I would like that to happen. I don't suspect that actually will happen. Um, but really remember what the, the chaos was during the Brett Kavanaugh thing and how insane it was. I was actually on tour with Jordan Peterson at the time and I remember we were in Ireland in Dublin doing a show and a guy came up to me on the street and was going, what do you think about Brett Kavanaugh? Blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, I was like, this is bananas. I'm across the world and people in Dublin are asking me about what our Supreme Court nomination process is going, what, what's happening with it in the States. And it's like, that, that is just bananas. All right, I wanna move on and use the remaining time, uh, just a couple minutes to talk about 9-11 um, because tomorrow is the 19th anniversary of 9-11. It's hard to believe that it's 19 years. And for any of you guys that were alive and of age when, you're, when you can make memories, I, I have no doubt that you remember the day uh, just as I do, whether you were in New York City like I was or, or wherever you were, whether you were in the States or anywhere else. Um, so I just wanna spend a couple minutes talking about my experience um, in New York City during 9-11 because I think we forget some of the human stuff and I have no doubt that unfortunately tomorrow we'll all be fighting about politics the way that we do and, and getting further and further away from what 
New York City, but the country was actually like for a while, for a good while after 9-11, where we really did put a lot of this stuff aside. And there was sort of an incredible national feeling. I mean, every time I see the video of George Bush going out in the World Series Yankee Stadium to throw out that pitch, and he throws a perfect strike, say what you want about George W. Bush, but the guy threw a perfect strike, like that feeling, it, I, truly, I've gotten chills down my spine many times while watching that. Um, at the time, so this is 2001, I was about 25 years old. I was living in New York City. I lived on 90th between 1st and York. So those of you that know, know New York City, this is far Upper East Side. And it's a really bizarre spot, 90th between 1st and York, because to get to the subway, I had to walk. I was closer to York, which is basically as east as you can get. It's about a block away from... Uh, Gracie Mansion, which is the the mayor's mansion, actually. And uh, to get to the subway there, I had to walk to First Avenue, to Second Avenue, to Third Avenue, to Lex, then to 89th, 88th, 87th, and then the subway was on 86th and Lex. So it was a really bizarre spot to to live in. Um, and at the time, I had I had actually just got laid off from a job. It was just some some office job that I was doing, and I was doing stand up at night. And I got a call in the morning. Actually, remember, I had just got a cell phone. So that, that tells you about how the world changes, right? I had just got a cell phone. I had a little Nokia, black little, I think they, it was like a candy bar. I think that's what they called it. All you could do is play snake on that thing. It wasn't even color. Um, and I got a call that morning from my dad. And my dad worked in the city in Midtown on uh, about 36th Street and 7th or so. And uh, he told me that a plane had hit the one of the towers of the World Trade Center and I should turn on the TV and everything else. And that he could see it from his office. Um, because he had, a, he had a view straight downtown. He had a great office in the city. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, a few minutes later, the second tower hit, and then, and then we knew something, something horrible was happening. And I remember the feeling of like, like the world is melting away, like everything that we know in the world is kind of melting away. I was, I was home alone. I had two roommates who were, who were at work. So now, you know, this is around 9-something, I guess, probably around 9.30 or so. And, you know, like everybody else, I, I was glued to the TV. I, I was freaking out and trying to think of all my friends. I had a lot of friends that worked down in the financial district, and I was trying to think of who to call. And you couldn't even immediately, you basically couldn't make calls on cell phones. Um, but then then uh, occasionally a call would get through. And, you know, I had I had a friend who actually was an intern at The Daily Show at the time. I had been an intern at The Daily Show before that, and I helped my friend Ed get a job. And he called, he suddenly got through, and he had started walking from the west side uh, because he lived in the suburbs. And it was very obvious from the beginning people weren't going to be able to get out of the city. So he started walking across town to stay with me. And I had a couple friends that couldn't get out that stayed with me that night. Um, my dad ended up staying at my grandma who lived on the east side with some of the people from his office because none of them could get out of the city. And I just, more than anything, I just remember the feeling like, oh, the old, like it's all, everything we thought we knew, like we don't know, like now we're under attack. And we have to remember, they were thinking at that time that there were all these other planes and then the Pentagon thing happened and the, and the plane in Pennsylvania and everything else. And that, that really horrific feeling of like, you just think the world is going to be okay. And then... It's just not okay. Um, I remember walking out to, to First Avenue and I wanted to go to the store because I suddenly thought, all right, we, we better stock up on stuff. Who knows what's going on here? Like, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. Like, were there suddenly going to be bombings all over the city or, or what? And I remember I went to this just like little local bodega there. And as I was walking in within, this must have been within 45 minutes or so, 
maybe an hour, um, you could smell it. And I was far, I mean, I was on 90th street. So that's uptown and, you know, obviously world trade center, that's downtown. Um, but you could smell the soot and the concrete and, and I didn't even want to think what else you're, you're smelling in the air at the time. And I remember I bought, I bought some bread, I bought some Gatorade, um, and just a bunch of stuff. And then I remember seeing as I walked out and I started looking downtown. So I'm on first Avenue looking downtown and just seeing thousands of people walking up in the middle of the street, right? Cause they were at that point, cars had sort of started disappearing and people are just kind of shell shocked just walking uptown, just people trying to get home. Um, and you know, over the next couple of days and everything else, we were just glued to the TV. If you, if you want to watch an interesting interview that I did a year ago, I think I did it a year ago today on September 10th, I had Aaron Brown on and Aaron Brown was the CNN anchor who, who handled most of their nine 11 stuff. Um, and he did an actually remarkable job, like an actual old school, non-alarmist journalist just did a wonderful job. Um, but in the following weeks, I remember about 10 days after 9-11 and, and it, was, it was just weird. It was just, there, there's no way to describe it properly, actually. Um, but I remember about 10 days after I thought, all right, I got to get out of the house. Like, I just got to get out of the house. And I grabbed my basketball and I went over to Gracie Mansion and there were some basketball courts right outside over there. And I didn't know if anyone else was going to be there, but I was like, I got to get out. You could still smell the soot and the stuff in the air. So like, especially if you're going to be running around, it was like kind of gross. But I, I got in a pickup game a little four on four pickup game, full court with, with a bunch of guys. I don't think anyone knew anybody on the court, but we were all just kind of out there. And there was just like this weird feeling, like we we're kind of looking at each other, like, all right, are, are we even allowed to play basketball right now? Anyway, we started playing. And then at one point, one guy elbowed another guy and they got in each other's face. You know, it happens. And they started screaming at each other. And I kid you not, at almost the exact same time, they both started crying, like adult men just crying. They kind of hugged each other and we all kind of teared up and then, you know, we finished, we finished playing and, and that was it. But I remember that, that moment for some reason strikes me as like the most, it's like the most New York city moment that, that there is like, we survived this horrific thing together. We, we came together yet. There's that New York city part where you're going to fight with somebody in a second. And then there was something bigger than all of us that, that brought us all together. Uh, there's a million stories like this. I, I, it turned out that I, I knew, I didn't know anyone myself directly, miraculously, that died in 9-11, but I had a lot of people that I know that either a parent or an uncle or a cousin or something else, because basically anyone that lived in the tri-state area, if you lived in New York, Jersey, or Connecticut, you, you were somehow connected to somebody uh, that died. I had a couple friends who's had to move apartments and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But that moment, just that that sort of simple human moment is what sticks with me more than anything else. And, uh, and I hope, I hope that in, in these crazy times that we seem to live in right now, that maybe tomorrow we'll be able to get back to a little bit of what that feeling was like after, you know, like I could sit here all day long and tell you about the wokesters and, and the crazy leftists and the progressives and all that. And I have all my frustrations. But like, if this project is to continue, this American project, we're going to have to figure out a way to, to build some roads forward. Um, and there was a feeling after 9-11 that, that maybe we could. There was some national unity. We don't have a lot of it right now. I don't know exactly how we get back to it. And I certainly hope it doesn't take another you know, tragedy of that magnitude to get us there. Um, but that's, that's, uh, that's my memory. That's my main memory. of uh, it, it changed everything, obviously. Uh, I'd love to to read some of your stories if you guys want to throw some comments in the comment section right down below. 
And that is the direct message for September 10th, 2020. And I will see you guys next week.